When we interviewed the author Martin Ford, who wrote Rise of the Robots, which is a book about automation in the coming decades, we spoke off mic and he had mentioned if, if your main vocation involves manipulating data in an Excel sheet, it's likely that your job could be automated. This is sort of his little euphemism for the fact that there's a lot of white collar work that may in fact be taken over by machines, machines capable of manipulating data and understanding data to some degree. But there are more complicated kinds of knowledge work that are harder to crunch, so to speak, by a computer than a simple program that maybe adds numbers or finds patterns. There's more detailed business processes that are awful hard to automate that companies are taking a crack at automating now. One such company is called Rage Frameworks. They're based in the Boston area. And this week we speak with their senior VP of marketing, Joy Dasgupta, who speaks with us about some specific applications of automation technologies, process automation, applied to white collar environments. So Joy speaks with us about a couple finance environments that would translate into other industries as well. Combinations of machine vision, of machine learning, various other artificial intelligence components patched together to kind of take hold of a process that otherwise would have involved hundreds and hundreds or even thousands of thousands of people at a big financial institution. And this is sort of a microcosm of what is to come, as, or so Joy paints the picture. And he gives us a great picture as to how these processes are being automated today. So if you're interested in the automation of white collar work, this should certainly be an interesting episode. I hope you all enjoy this one. This is Joy with Rage Frameworks. All right, so Joy, I wanted to talk a little bit about some case studies and use cases of sort of automating or, or streamlining process work and knowledge work. That's what you folks do. That's you know arguably the, the biggest part of your, your value prop at Rage Frameworks. Talk us through some, some common examples, I guess, of knowledge work that you've seen sort of commonly solved by your solutions. Thanks, Dan. Let me let me give you a couple of examples here, right? So let me first start with another. So when you said we are in the business of automation of knowledge work, I would extend that by saying with an infusion of machine intelligence and learning and artificial intelligence in all of those arenas as yes. well. Yes, you, you wouldn't be on the show if you weren't, just so you know. So <laughs> not, not, not many other kind of companies make it here. So you are right. Okay. All right. So, so let me use let me use a, you know, a, a, a what what may be a fairly easy to understand use case. So today, uh, for example, if you're a commercial bank and you lend money to let's say small businesses, then you're going to want to monitor them on a quarterly or half yearly basis to check on their creditworthiness. So now you expand that. And so each bank, you know, you might have 100,000 such uh, such customers and you expand that across the United States and you expand that across the globe and you will have millions and millions of obligors, borrowers who need to submit financial statements to the banks that they're borrowing from for credit worthiness analysis and checks and credit modeling. The state of the art today is that each and every one of those banks, based on the intelligence that we have and some direct primary research that we've done, they are entering this information manually, all right? Typically, that includes three statements. You have a PNL, a balance sheet, and as well as a cash flow statement, and lots of notes at the end of a financial statement, which kind of has turned out to be, for whatever reasons, automation proof over the years. So we have an application, which we call Live Spread, that essentially uses a one patented component within the overall patented platform, which is which is the extraction component. 
that can intelligently extract text, financial data, as well as meaning from the footnotes that then go and modify or alter the uh, or, or augment the data that's there in the body of the statement. So our solution, once you sort of implement it, here's how it works. Uh, from a bank's perspective, you're basically getting statements in various different languages because you're international. You're getting statements in all different forms and formats because no private company needs to comply with any reporting format for their statements. You're getting uh, information in different gap standards or accounting standards across the world and other nuances. And you've got to now bring it in. You run your application, live spread. Basically, what it does is it's form and format agnostic and protocol agnostic. You bring in the content. You, uh, you extract the information. You cleanse it you normalize it, then you run all kinds of checks to make sure that you extract it properly in the first place because the output has to be near 100% accurate. That's sort of the expectation from any, from any bank. And so that's how the software works. So we aggregate, we normalize, we normalize for language, we normalize for gap rules, we normalize for form and for format, and we bring it in and do the work, 90% of the work that was being done manually prior to this at an accuracy of upwards of 95%. What it looks like on the inside for the bank now is where they had hundreds of people doing this work and they had distributed that between a category called a maker and a checker. So the maker makes and the checker then does the whole work all over again, right? So it's, it's, it's a doubling of the workforce, literally. So our solution goes in there and, and sort of replaces the maker and makes the job of the checker way easier because the checker is now checking for the three or four mistakes that the machine detected that they need to work on. And as they work on those, if those are false positives or false negatives, or if they want to change the machine's behavior for the next statement, then they sort of instruct the machine right there and then saying, okay, this is how I'm fixing this error. Next time, just pass it because it's not really an error. Okay. So we can bring down through this application, and we have multiple clients that are already using this in production, very large banks, multinational banks, global banks. Uh, we have upwards of 80, 85% efficiency improvements. That's one example. Got it. Okay. I'm going to dig into that one a little bit because I like that as an example. It seems like, you know, when we talk about low-hanging fruit in the automation space, I think now, you know, even five years ago, most people would have thought of automation primarily still in kind of the blue-collar world. I think now a lot of the exciting automation is in the white-collar world. This is a great example of something that feels like it's, it's pretty urgent to handle. I mean, we, we've got a tremendous volume of these statements. We've got a manual kind of pecking and entering process, which just feels so 1975. I mean, to, to get something in the mail or an email and have to manually enter, it's just absolutely horrible. And then we need somebody else to check that. So huge human resource requirements here for what really is, I guess we could call it you know, somewhat monotonous, maybe certain elements of creativity involved. But I mean, for the most part, we're looking at a really sort of straightforward job that just happens to be coming in in formats that make it you know non-automatable as, as you were saying before the way that the process is developed there's too much variance for us to just shove it into a copier type machine and have it all suck up and populate properly in a database that's just not the case we've got just way too many human heads that have to be involved in, in this kind of a process so what you folks are doing is essentially it sounds as though there's got to be some degree of i mean are we loading in PDFs primarily to this system? What are our inputs? Right. 
So, so that's actually where the where so so the inputs. So you you use the time frame 1975, right? So the world outside we have to assume is going to be stuck in 1975 for a while, but the world inside the bank has to be 2016 or 2017, right? That's the that's the you can't change the world outside. So we take in whatever form and format we get. So we get attachments to emails. We get Microsoft Excel. We get PDFs. We get QuickBooks outputs. And for public companies, of course, you know, it's uh, the sourcing is relatively easy because we, we go to SEC or we go to the SEC equivalent in different countries and download public company statements. Now, you should know an attempt to solve this problem, which has been in the making for years and, and now is, is sort of in production, is this whole idea of this XBRL standard where financial statement tagging is uh, standardized. And therefore, at least for public companies, those who file with SEC, downloading their statements is now it's pre-tagged so you you've sort of eliminated the manual work around it but unfortunately that tagging doesn't go deep enough it doesn't give even even the xbrl standard is very shallow it doesn't give you the tags within the tags that you really need to be able to extract let's say the details on operating leases or contractual obligations or you know some adjustments for for one-time actions and things like that so so it's sort of a halfway house standard that is emerged recently for public companies but for private companies which is the bulk of where the action is there is absolutely no input standard even even the the attempts to make the information sort of streamlinable still don't get to the degree of granularity that a bank would want in order to know how much are we willing to loan this person how should we treat their financial obligation you got it that's exactly it. right Okay. That's exactly right. There's got to be some degree of, I imagine, machine vision here, some degree of natural language processing, some some way of, of looking at a document and, and figuring out, okay, this is, you know, the bottom line. This number represents this item. This number represents right. this item. And and drinking that in and inputting it, again, we're automating the maker's job, as, as you had put it. It sounds yeah. as though all of those facets of AI sort of have to be alive and well and constantly attuned to that that initial process of, of kind of drinking in this varied and variable information. Absolutely. And and I think there's two processes. I think there's the drinking or the eating and then the digesting, right? So 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 the ingestion process is of course where your OCR engines come in to the extent that there are PDF images. And and there, you know, uh, one of the biggest challenges of course is image quality. And and that also is another variable out there that you cannot control. So we have built a whole bunch of image quality enhancers um, and, and OCR enhancers. So we go and use, you know, state-of-the-art OCR engines, and we have geometric enhancers to make better sense, to, to be able to read documents that the OCR engine wouldn't be able to uh, generate proper output for. So that's sort of one innovation, which I would club in the AI category. There is visioning image recognition there. So once you've converted an image to text, that's sort of within quotes, uh, at some level, the easy part. Then you've got to make sense of the data that's there. How is it represented? It is not positional, so it's not tab delimited. So firstly, your engine has to be totally non-positional. It doesn't have to care about positions. And you're not chasing tags down the page. You have to know accounts receivable, and sometimes you have to know that this is an accounts receivable line by reading other things around it. Yeah, con the context there makes it context. hard. That's the word. Okay, so it is absolutely every element of extraction has to be contextual. And then finally, just before finally, I suppose you've got to go to the, there's, there's a lot of footnote extraction required to complete your analysis. So sometimes you have an accounts receivable line 
or you have a operating interest line, uh, operating, sorry, operating income details. And then you have to go to the footnotes to actually get the supporting details for it. And there are some nice little checks and balances we've built in. So for example, if, if a breakup for a particular line item is in the footnotes, then we scroll down to the footnotes, we read the whole document. This could, footnotes could be on page 25. And we, we bring that up and then we total those individual lines in the breakup and double check against the actual total that appeared in the body of the statement which then doubles up as a quality assurance check to make sure that our extraction and the reading of the image was correct in the first place. So we have a, a multiple triangulation methods built in to make sure that we don't generate any false positives because that's not acceptable in this use case. Yeah, yeah. And, and these are the things that, that somebody would be doing with a pen and paper as they're reading the document themselves, right? They would have to say, all right, well, I want to make sure I'm entering this right. I have this number here, but in the footnotes, it says this. Let me try to add these up. This is like a, a live human thinking process that somebody would have to go through. But you're, you're essentially trying to find all these ways that we can fact check and back check and build that into a loop that happens while ingestion and digestion are, are happening. That is correct. And by the way, when you said that the, the, and there is a mechanical portion of this, but several of the employees in use cases, not all of them, but several of the employees in this particular process would be CPAs, highly qualified people. Yeah, and they would have to, you know, they wouldn't be dealing with quite the same degree of, of volume or kind of manual pecking work. I mean, they'd be doing a little bit of higher level checking. Okay, so that's that's an interesting use case and I think a worthwhile one in terms of understanding how a system can be automated and can be refined. I wanted to get into one other one before we talk about kind of the role of, okay. of a human okay. being. What's, a, what's right. another good example of something highly repeatable or something that you guys are working on streamlining? Okay, and I'll just talk to you. Just give me one more second on this one. By the way, that's step one of the process. Oh, right? got it. Okay. All the way, and we won't talk about it, but I'll just leave you with the, with the thought because you've now extracted it. Now you've got to compute financial ratios. You've got to get credit scores or credit models or equity models, uh, depending on the use case. So all of that can happen on the same platform. You don't, you don't now have to go to a different technology platform for your credit scoring or for your equity model building or for further deeper analytics. So one of the differentiating factors for the Rage AI platform is we don't just do the AI part. We also do the automation part. I think we talked about it earlier on. That's a, that's a key point. Um, so Dan, a second use case, I'm thinking uh, which one to illustrate. We have a document management contract review use case as well as an insurance one. Then we talked about the uh, document management use case. Let's take a bank as an example. By the way, this is extensible across banks and across industries. And we have gone across industries. In this specific bank, for example, they're sitting on contracts from, let's say, the year 1980, right? Or pick your year. Hundreds of thousands or they, or, and millions, right? And over time, these have been amended and amended amendments have been attached. Some of the banks have gone ahead and tried to digitize some of this to sort of at least have good, solid digital repositories, but these are unreadable. They're just scanned images that's kept there with, uh, it's a black box. Um, the challenge here is, is sort of twofold. One is, can you go back and read all my contracts for me and extract the following 15 clauses? Tell me what my indemnification clause looks like. How much insurance exposure do I have? Tell me something about the termination of this contract or renewability and so on and so forth. And of course, there's a big fee section. So one is from just legal and compliance perspective, help me understand what I have signed up for, right? So that's sort of one use case and 100% manual, obviously. And then having done that, oh, now you suddenly have my contract. 
So you have my contract extracted, digitized, and, and made into structured from unstructured. We actually think of a contract as somewhat of a semi-structured document. And now that I have that, well, help me with my billing problem. Make sure that I'm complying in my billing because now I don't want to underbill and neither do I want to overbill for compliance reasons. So once you've got the contract extracted and you're also able to extract from invoices and then match them all on the same platform, that creates a very compelling breakthrough end-to-end -to -end knowledge process automation type solution. You know, that's sort of kind of what we have. We have done a very successful POC for a very large bank, and it actually exercises several aspects of the full breadth of our platform, including natural language understanding. This, I'm going to see if I can encapsulate this in my own understanding as well, just to, to make sure the audience gets it too. Somebody would have had to, let's say, however long ago, there would have had to be a team basically sent out to read through you know, borderline countless number of documents in order to understand, you know, hey, let's find all of this kind of company in this kind of region. I want to understand our indemnification clauses generally across those kinds of companies. People would be just digging through files and then just kind of taking notes in a big document somewhere and then eventually present that as a report after, you know, three or four weeks of digging. Or months. Or months, yeah. So a lot, a lot, a lot of homework uh, before we kind of come up with an answer. What it sounds like, you know, again, assuming we can pull in some context here, assuming natural language processing can can sort of identify, I imagine you would need a certain number of sample documents in order to understand, okay, what are the common features of this kind of clause? What are the words in order? What's the placement in the document that's going to flag the system to say, grab this? I imagine that might differ per bank and you might need a handful of those in order to essentially tune the system to say, hey, look, with this bank, under this context, you know, here's going to be the, the adjusted set of rules so that you can kind of run free in this system and, and grab all of this. Is, is that safe to say? Yeah, so, but I'd like to elaborate a little bit more on that. So eventually you've got to get to that, right? So you've got to be able to be able to extract in context. However, since we take a linguistics-based approach as opposed to a, well, a computational linguistics approach, in addition to an NLP and statistical approach, uh, some of the bigger players in the market today, and one that we are actually in conversation with on sort of understanding each other's methods, is a highly statistically oriented approach. It would require a very large training set, a very large corpus, and that therefore implies time to, to basically come to grips with all the variability. Using a linguistic approach, we sort of eliminate the language variability from the problem set completely. So if there's a different ways of talking about termination or about jurisdiction region in, in, a, in a given contract, those nuances, they are removed from the equation. So for us, for example, just to cut to the chase, we need a very small corpus train the engine and therefore a very short amount of time. In fact, we have a working ontology. We can build a working ontology from the very first document. The second refines it further, the third refines it further. So we can actually go to production if the client wants it that way, because in the beginning, of course, there'll be more exceptions. We can go to production on a corpus of one and then tune as we go along on a document by document basis. So it is really the differentiator here is that if you can understand language and context and have a reasoning framework. In other words, you can, our solutions are not a black box. So statistical models will be black boxes by definition. You can click your way back to where you got that specific clause from, why the engine picked it up that way. And if you don't like it, you can change it. Got it. And, and that's that's important, I imagine, if we're, again, if we're tuning and adjusting to, you know, a tremendous volume of documents, you'd sort of want to be able to have some of that 
visibility inside of the engine. I was actually curious, you brought up, you can build sort of a baseline for a process based off a corpus of one. I, I wasn't aware if, let's say, in particular industries where you've already done a lot of work, if you already have kind of a lexicon built out where some of that context knowledge is already sort of stored yeah. somewhere and we get those terms, we know how to do this, we can supplement this with what we've already collected. Or does it vary a good deal per company? Maybe it's not safe to save lexicons even from the same industry. I don't know how much is transferable or not, but I'm interested in your insights there. There's a different use case where it's a, in a way it's 100% transferable, right? Which is, for example, we have an application of what we call an intelligent machine for that use case as well. In this scenario, we are sort of tracking health of a company, and that can be purposed for different reasons. You could be using that to track a supplier or a customer or to inform your equity research process, if you like. Whatever the use case may be, the task here is to track the financial viability, performance, and health of a company. So the ontology there. The discovery that we've done there is replicable across multiple companies in a given industry. But each company will have its own nuance. Once you've covered all companies, then you're done. <laughs> yeah. I'll cross my fingers that you guys finally uh, catch them all. That'll be excellent. <laughs> Lastly, Joy, just because I'm wary of time, but I really did want to make sure I asked this, this last question of you. We're talking about taking jobs that probably, I mean, to be honest, you know, some of the folks doing things that are super repetitive may want to be doing other things in the first place. Maybe there's some people that really enjoy super repetitive tasks if they're into kind of that kind of perfectionism, but there's a lot yeah. of folks that are going to be kind of happy to move along. Given the, the way that you folks are aiming to structure processes, humans have a little bit of a different sort of role in the system. You're taking the maker out in some of these scenarios. You're sort of getting a lot of the checking done in some of these scenarios. The people in these roles are a little bit more high skilled. When you talk about the CPAs and the financial, the first financial example, where do you see as the, the most important role in people as we start moving towards leveraging AI for knowledge processes? Where do people come in? What's their sort of fit in that regard? Outstanding question. That's, of course, a question that we're all grappling with as technologists and as watchers of society and everything. Uh, let me answer that in our context. What happens to people in processes that we automate using our AI solutions and our knowledge-based automation? Our task in many of these use cases, not all, in many of these use cases is to really automate manual processes. And of course, there will be displacement of people there. And the roles that remain in that particular type of scenario, and I'll give you two, three examples, is that of the exception management team. There used to be a large team that would make and check. In the new model is the checker and a high-end checker who has a broader sort of uh, purview and broader set of responsibilities would be managing that entire process. So that's sort of one of the areas. But let's say in the in the uh, in our capital research product, uh, sorry, our capital markets real-time intelligence product, we are using deep natural language understanding and deep learning, and there is no displacement in that specific use case. That is really to provide an extra pair of eyes and extra support for whether you're an equity research person or a, or a quant person or a trader with more information to address the information asymmetry issue, I suppose, or the information overload issue, I should yep. say. So there are use cases of AI that we can clearly see and that we have deployed where there's no displacement, but augmentation of existing roles. But there certainly are others, like my first example, where the purpose of the automation is to automate. And it will displace manual roles into higher roles, uh, higher responsibility and accountability roles. And that displacement then is something that is an open question as to you know how we deal with that first, overall. Right? First, yeah, and it's not the first time it's ever happened either, right? It's not like 
you know, Rage Frameworks or a, a small series of companies are the first to sort of automate a process. I mean, of course, this has happened for centuries. This is just kind of the next level of it. It sounds like, and I just want to make sure I have this correctly before we wrap up, the sort of anomaly detection, I suppose, is done at a higher level of knowledge and abstraction because a lot of the the lower levels of that we've been able to streamline into a process. So that kind of checking and detection is now less folks, but a higher skilled position. And then I suppose there's also the higher skilled position of orchestrating and designing the system. So it seems like you know the manual work becomes fewer people, higher knowledge base, and then you, you take your higher, your really high knowledge base folks to design, tweak, and adjust the process. And I, it seems like maybe that's where human intelligence is kind of shifting towards you know, higher level checking and higher level designing of the systems that kind of do the crunching. I think you said it so elegantly. I mean, that's, those are the words I was looking for, right? So it's, it's design in an enterprise of, I don't know, 2080, right? Let's fast forward like 60 years. In, a, in, in, in the enterprise of 2080, most execution will happen. The machine will do much exe- most of the execution and humans would do the design and the high level exception management, ensuring that the machines are executing properly. I mean, that, that's a sort of a science fiction view, but but that's not, you know, super hard to imagine if you like fast forward 60 years. Yeah, no, no, not not at all. Yeah, it'll be an exciting world that we find ourselves in, Joy. And I, I like uh, hearing about what you folks are doing on the cutting edge of sort of this white collar work. This has really been insightful. And I hope that the folks tuned in have enjoyed this one. So Joy, thank you so much for sharing your insights here on Tech Emergence. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. That wraps up today's episode here on the Tech Emergence Podcast, and thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay in touch with our latest interviews with C-level executives and top researchers and thinkers in the domains of AI and the intersection of technology and intelligence, then make sure to subscribe here on iTunes or visit us on our main website at techemergence.com, where you can see all of our interviews broken down by category, as well as articles, news, market research, and trends in artificial intelligence. If you found this episode particularly thought-provoking, feel free to leave your thoughts in a review here on iTunes, or you can feel free to reach out to us at our main website. Thanks, as always, for tuning in, and I'll catch you next week.